0: The Akad and Coca Report, episode number 11. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare, from policy to economics, from evidence based medicine to ethics. Join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, Anish. Hello. Hi. Hello. So we're here for a, a new episode of the Akkad and Koka report. We're going to try something a little different today. For what it's worth, I mean, people on podcasts, uh, you know, when, when this gets to be on podcast, I think should be able to follow. But since we have the video, we may as well take advantage of it. So I'm going to give you a talk. I haven't prepared in depth, so don't, don't get your hopes uh, too high. But let me share the screen here. So there's a paper that just came out, uh, published online on JAMA, about shared medi- medical decision-making. And I want to slay that uh, sacred cow, or that, that golden calf. What do you think? Sounds good, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears to see. Uh, <laughs> see what you think about shared decision-making. All right, so the paper is, uh, is here on, on screen. It's mandatory shared decision-making by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the author is uh, faisal merchant uh, who's a cardiologist apparently at uh at Duke an electrophysiologist and i'm go- i'm not going to discuss the paper in detail, but the, the gist is that um, Medicare is now going to uh, mandate shared de- shared decision making whatever that that means and we'll go into that uh, in just a little bit uh, before implantation of um, uh, Defibrillators, uh, ICDs, and apparently I didn't know that this is not the first time that um, uh, CMS mandates uh, shared decision making. They've mandated it so far for left atrial appendage closure and for um, screening for lung cancer with a low-dose uh, CT. So this editorial announces that this is going to be um, rolled out and the editorial in general is very supportive of uh, these kinds of mandates um, because, uh, as we will see, um, it may be particularly beneficial in case for which physicians have incentives to recommend costly treatment. And um, and so I wanted to, you know, shared decision-making, I mean, being against shared decision-making right now is like being against, um, you know, the fly, the flag and apple pie and, and mothers. You hear about shared mis- decision-making shared, <laughs> shared decision-making SDM. Um, you know, uh, it, uh, you know, you read about it on every other page of medical journals. It's unquestioned as being, uh, an unalloyed good that we we'll, we should all follow. It should be the model for, uh, the doctor patient relationship. And what's interesting is that I had never heard of the term when I was in medical school or training or fellowship. And it really emerged, um, in full force just uh, in a few years so to get a sense of that i went on pubmed and i did a um a search term you know a query for um the search search term shared decision making and as you can see here it was barely in the medical literature in the 70s 80s and 90s and then it starts to rise you know in the late 1990s and then two thousand. you know there's more and then in the last five years boom it, it just explodes Everything is about shared decision-making all of a sudden. And, uh, you know, I thought that's, uh, that's a little strange. You know, why would that be? Um, and, and, and what do people mean when they say shared decision-making? Um, what, what, what are your thoughts, uh, Anish? What do, what do you think when, when some, somebody says, you know, shared decision-making? What does that mean to you?
1: I mean, I'm, yeah, as you've said, it uh, came into vogue uh, you know, the last uh, 10 years or so that I've been hearing this more and more. And it seems to be something that's, uh, is about, uh, trying to align, uh, you know, the decisions that are being made with, uh, with the patient's interests. I mean, the fundamental premise is that most of the decisions that are being made are being made in somewhat of a paternalistic manner. Uh, decisions are made mostly because the physicians shade patients to make one decision or the other. And the physician's point of view may be very different from what the physician wants is very different from what the patient wants. Um, so at its, I mean, I understand the basic premise is to try to align the decisions made with what the patient wants. So, you know, the, the classic story is of the oncologist that, uh, uh, is seeing a patient with pancreatic cancer, uh, that is, uh, end stage and the oncologist wants to keep going. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not what the patient and what the family, uh, want. And, uh, the idea is, is, that that has not, you know, that has gone. Most treatment has gone the way that physicians want, not what patients want. So, yeah, we have a better, a better, uh, you know, a better path forward with shared decision making. Apparently,
0: right, right, and, and I think you're right. I mean, I think that's essentially the the gist of it. Although we we have something called uh, informed consent, right, and and then the question becomes, you know, what is the relationship between informed consent and shared medical decision making? And that's essentially so. So I, I was curious, and I went back to try to see where this whole thing started. And I tried to find the first mentions of the term. And actually, in the in the sixties and seventies, it's in you know it's in German speaking language. Uh, Germ- you know, it, it has nothing to do with uh, with our current concept. But it really it, it begins in full force in 1980 or in 1982. Um, with a report, uh, this report, this this is from 19, uh, 1982. It's a report called, called "Making Healthcare Decisions," and it's a report issued by a, a presidential commission on medical ethics. And I don't know if you're aware. I wasn't aware of it until until a few years ago. But um, since the the 1970s, there have been periodically um, commissions, um, uh, medical ethics or bioethics commissions um, set up either by Congress or by the presidents or, you know, by the governments, uh, one way or another to study certain topics of importance. And that came about, um, in the aftermath, in the aftermath of the, uh, Tuskegee syphilis, uh, scandal, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis study scandal, which, you know, at some point we should do a show about that. It's, It's really, a, if people don't know about it, it's a horrific event. Um, in, in public health and um, but anyway so there was this huge scandal and uh, and so they, they got together uh, a commission to study the uh, the question of um, the ethics of um, participation in research in clinical research and that gave rise to uh, the establishment of uh, IRBs you know institu- institutional uh, review boards and so forth and since then uh, periodically every few years there's a, a presidential commission that. Um, gets together and addresses an important topic and they can be very influential. They can, for example, there was one that I was interested in uh, was uh, instrumental in um, legalizing the concept of brain death uh, across the United States. And it also uh, took place in the, in the early 1980s. Um, so this one um, was commissioned to study the, the question of informed consent because at that time in the late 1970s and uh, early 1980s the, the, there was a, a real a perceived uh, uh, crisis um, in medical mal- malpractice a lot of doctors and hospitals were getting sued um, and uh, it, it seemed that a lot of the times the claim was that the patients were not getting um, sufficient informed consent about the risk of procedures and uh, and so forth and the courts dealt with that, um, you know, frequently by, you know, if they would side um, with the patient that indeed informed consent did not, um, you know, did not take place and and that it should take place. And uh, as a result of these court decisions, the, the, the procedure of informed consent that we're all familiar with sort of came to be. So the, the reason why we now fill out forms, you know, with fine print and we ask the patient to sign the informed consent has emerged from uh, all these legal cases um, from the 1960s, 70s, and and 80s. And it's amazing.
1: I mean, since we started doing informed consent, we have ended medical malpractice. It's uh, (laughs) exactly, exactly.
0: The problem medical malpractice. Correct. Well, uh, so to the, so this commission was uh, commissioned, you know, I mean, this group of, of ethicists and uh, were commissioned and these guys, you know, who sits on those commissions? I, mean, I really have no idea how they get selected. Uh, some of them are MDs. Some of them are non-MD ethicists. Some of them represent different uh, religious uh, perspectives and, you know, I, I, nothing wrong with that. I mean, I have no, no problem with this diversity, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure how that, you know, how they get selected, but they, they do get, get selected. So they were selected and, and uh, asked to study the, the question of informed consent. And uh, whether sh- steps should be taken to improve on it. Because by that time, it was pretty well established that, you know, doctors should have a discussion with a patient uh, about the risks of a treatment or a procedure and, and get them to document with, on a piece of paper that uh, they're consenting to the treatment. And um, so, so, so they got together and they had, you know, this is not just a commission that meets, uh, you know, that met just once they had two or three years before they were able to publish this report. And the report is really quite thick. It's like hundreds of pages with tons of citations. And and they also had, the, they, they were able to commission three empirical studies while they were preparing the report, you know, to survey patient preferences and patient views and perspectives on the whole process of informed consent and physician and all that stuff. So at any rate, it's a huge thing. It's not a, surprisingly, it's not that difficult to read some of these, you know, huge reports that you read, you know, like the ones that come out of the uh, Institute of Medicine, for example, I mean, they're completely unreadable, but, um, but this one is actually quite readable. So it starts by um, giving the history of the process of, of the, the crisis of the, of informed consent and the crisis of malpractice and how the courts have responded to the crisis. And, um, And, you know, I want to read just the first paragraph, just to to set the tone here. It says, the complexities of modern life make it difficult for individuals to be masters of their own fate. Perhaps in no sphere of everyday activity is this more acute than in healthcare. This often frustrating lack of control can be traced to several recent developments. The increasing reliance on advanced technology, the high degree of specialization, the consequent segmentation of care among an imposing array of healthcare professionals, who are often strangers to the patient, etc. So all of this, you know, sort of conspires uh, to make it difficult for patients to, you know, maintain their, you know, a certain sense of control uh, during the healthcare experience. And, and I think that's correct. There's nothing wrong with that. And then they go on to criticize the the current system that has emerged from the, from the courts and the laws. You know, Current requirements for informed consent owe much to the legal system, but the values underlying these requirements are not merely legal artifacts. Rather, they are deeply embedded in American culture and the American character. They transcend partisan ideologies and the politics of the moment. Fundamentally, informed consent is based on respect for the individual, and in, in particular, for each individual's capacity and right, both to define his or her own goals and to make choices designed to achieve those goals. So what they're really pushing here is, is the, the doctrine of uh, uh, self-determination or the, the doctrine of autonomy that has become a very, very prominent uh, ethical doctrine in, in modern medical ethics. And and we'll talk about that, I think, uh, you know a little bit later when we discuss, but that's that's the gist of um, of what they're driving at. So self-determination, sometimes termed autonomy, is an individual's exercise of the capacity to form, revise, and pursue personal plans for life. And more is involved in respect for self-determination than just the belief that each person knows what's best for him or herself, however. Even if it could be shown that an expert or a computer could do the job better, the worth of the individual as acknowledged in in Western ethical traditions, and especially in Anglo-American law, provides an independent and more important ground for recognizing self-determination As a basic principle in human relations particularly when matters as important as those those raised by healthcare are at stake so so essentially it's very important to pay attention to self-determination interestingly it's a little bit confusing to me what they what they're driving at here they say more is involved than just the belief that each person knows what's best for him or herself Um, and if it could be shown that an expert could do the job better the worth of the individual as acknowledged in Western, in, in white supremacist traditions, I might add, you know, that was written, you know, 30 years ago, I'm not sure if it would fly today, you know, this kind of language, you know, this uh, allusion to Western ethical traditions and to the Anglo-American law, but, but there it is. I mean, that's really the, the root of the shared medical decision-making process is this nod to Western ethical tradition um, as a ground for recognizing self-determination as a basic principle in human relations. Um, so that's, you know, that's the background. So they go on and and here I skip a few pages and then, you know, the realities of court decisions on informed consent fall short. So here they're describing what we're up to up until now practicing, you know, this process by which before the procedure, we, you know, give the patient 18 pages of fine print and say, here, go sign and, you know, and, and there you go. And then they say the commission, I mean, that's really the, 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 the bottom line, while recognizing the difficulty of the task, believes that shared decision-making is the appropriate ideal for patient-professional relationships that a sound doctrine of, of informed consent should support. But believe it or not, the, nowhere in the whole document, the whole, you know, 300 pages, do they really define what shared decision-making it's about. I mean, they take it as granted or at face value that we'll understand what the concept is just from from the uh, the, the the compounding of of the words, you know, shared decision making. And um, uh, as we will see, perhaps later, I'll leave that, uh, you know, uh, for later. You know, that that, that can be a, a real problem. So what happens? So that's that's a, a big big document that comes out in the 1980s produced by ethicists, you know, at the, the government level. And they say in the document, they say, we don't think the law law should be changed. We don't think that this process of shared decision-making should come about by uh, legal means. We need to change the culture of the medical profession and we need to sensitize doctors to uh, the idea of shared uh, decision-making, okay? So that's in 1980. What happens next? For the next 20 years, nothing happens. Uh, 25 years, as I showed you on the graph, you know, zero, zilch, you know, I don't hear about it in medical school, in residency, in fellowship, you know, I finished all my training in 2002, you know, n- n- nothing about shared decision making that I recall. But then it starts, starts to emerge in, in 2000, you know, or, or so. What do, what, what do you think happened around that time? 2000 oh, 2000. A couple of things. I mean, one is a movement that sort of grew that that predates two thousand, but but sort of by two thousand it had really flourished, and and we talked about that you know quite a bit. In two thousand, uh,
1: previous Did episodes.
0: You know, yeah, I mean, you know what what's happened? You know, by the late nineteen nineties, it was <laughs> the, the healthcare and managed. Yeah, care? yeah, uh, in, medi- in medicine, in medicine. Oh yeah, the growing uh, yeah. Uh, EBM, growing movement for. Oh, EBM used Ad- yeah. evidence-based kind of... medicine. No, evidence-based medicine emerged.
1: Hmm.
0: So yeah. now you have... But EBM, EBM, is, I mean,
1: EBM has been around since Sackett and the... I mean, when did Sackett right. first do his yeah, thing okay. at McGill? That was
0: a been a, that's it been a long time prior well, to that. The, the first papers from Sackett in JAMA was 19, 1992. 1992.
1: 1992.
0: Uh-huh. So yes, yes. I mean, the, the groundwork was laid, laid out, but it, it really didn't take off until the 1990s. And by, by the late 1990s and 2000s, then you have you have you know the, the the multiplicity. So not not only do you have the acceptance of EBM as you know uh, the the scientific way of practicing medicine, mm-hmm. but you also have a bunch of clinical trials
1: mm-hmm.
0: on the basis of which you can now actually have something to share with the patient. Because if you think about it, it what are you going mm-hmm. to share? You know, before you know, in general, yeah, in the yeah. past, if in the past it was primarily your your clinical experience. Right. You're going to tell the patient, well, on the basis of my clinical experience, you should get this treatment.
1: Right.
0: And then what is the patient going to say? No, uh, well, I, I don't, you know, on the basis of my, <laughs> you know, what do they have to come back? So so essentially, um, uh, EBM sort of, I think, in my mind at least, I mean, I don't think that's, that's stated, but that's my observation, is that, is that EBM gave shared medical decision-making sort of a second wind or, or, or some wings now to, to, to take off. And along with that, I think it's related to EBM, you have the... the the institute of medicine uh launching of the quality and and safety movement with uh, uh you know t- their documents you know to to er is is human you know the, these famous documents so you, so you have the launching of the, the 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 quality movement the the error movement and and that yeah. whole you know activity. i yeah i guess i guess you're right i i kind of viewed it as the as as uh, um
1: as all of this happening uh, with the standardization of medicine,
0: that's but, right. Which right, I think is, I think you're, you're right, right in EBM that part
1: of it. You're right in that the standardization of medicine um, does does coincide with <laughs> with EBM. I mean,
0: right, because EBM essentially gives a gives a, a method basis for that. Right, you know? it gives a method yeah. to standardize things. So you have the, the emergence of EBM, and now you have you have a method to standardize things. And then what happens next is you have um, um wait wait I'm trying to click on the next slide here what's happening page down uh oh ah well whoops are you there yep I'm still there okay my screen disappeared okay uh-huh. but um yeah so what is decision shared decision making nowadays in, in in a technical sense what is referred okay. to is referred to as Okay, of course, they want they want the doctor to sit with the patient and have a conversation. But the difference is that right now, shared decision-making is, you know, employing decision aids, right? And all this has emerged in the last, you know, 15 years. So you have the emergence of decision aids. You have these little, you're familiar with, the, with, with those little, uh, you know, little gimmicks, you know, the little apps with the smiley faces and frowny faces. And you plug in, you plug in the, the, the patient's characteristics, you know, the age, the cholesterol level, and whatnot, and then it it shows graphically to the patient exactly what what the risks are of the treatment, of the procedure, what well, exactly, yeah. you know. It, it's of course, crazy. the argument is, is that we are now making better decisions because of all this stuff. Right, right, uh, exactly. And and uh, you would disagree. But yes, I mean, there's no basis to that um, to that argument. It's a different conversation. I mean, it's part of the conversation. But on the one hand, we're supposed to be still to retain our autonomy as, as a physician, right? And, and our judgment. And on the other hand, we're supposed to take these decision aids into account. And so you look at this decision aid and what are you supposed to conclude from that decision aid? Are you supposed to conclude that yes, you should treat or no, you shouldn't treat? I mean, I'm not sure how that uh, immediately gives rise to the right decision. And now, what if what if the patient looks at this decision aid and comes to a conclusion that uh, you as a physician disagree with? And uh, I guess that's the point.
1: The point is is that, uh, you know, the point is, uh, you know, to, uh, to uh, 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 create some balance in terms of uh, the information asymmetry that exists between patient and physician. Yeah. And, uh, and this, this provides some balance and informs the, informs their uh, decision. Do you,
0: uh, yeah so uh, uh, I mean, that's right i mean i think I think it's all faulty we don't have i don't have a, uh, a time but it's, i don't think you know i if I think it's the right thing to do you know i think a treatment is the right thing to do uh, either I'm right or i'm wrong, but yeah. no, you know there's no proof that I'm right or wrong yeah, really yeah. empirical proof but and so the, Michelle, here's
1: the thing you you're, you're yeah. a master're you're, you're, you're a clinician that listens to the patients you have spent a lot of time with them you you're, you parse whether or not you know this is a uh, uh, an athlete who is uh, running, uh, you know, running marathons, and
0: versus somebody who's sedentary. Yeah, there's lots of right. Exactly. So, but so meaning there are things that don't don't enter into the, the equation. Yeah. yeah uh, no, that leads, That gives rise to to this little uh, oh, yeah. graphic. Well,
1: what if you get it wrong? What if What if you, as a clinician, uh, uh, misread your patient?
0: Well, what does that mean? I mean, misread in what way?
1: Meaning you think what okay. you think right. you think you know what the best thing is for your patient, but say you're like you know you're some you know you're you're some physician that uh, uh, has poor EQ and therefore
0: yeah well uh, you, how do you prove you think, how do you yeah. prove that I got it wrong now suppose yeah suppose that I um, uh, first of all the decision aid is not supposed to tell you really what how to treat yeah. right yeah uh, now suppose I treat uh, I, I I I give the drug or I do the procedure you know yeah and you know six months later the patient dies yeah does that mean that that was the wrong thing to do
1: no not necessarily
0: right it's hard it's hard to to
1: falsify probabilities
0: correct so it doesn't mean that it was the right thing you know or suppose the patient lives does that mean that it was the right thing to do to give the treatment Right, right. You, really, you don't know. I mean, it's completely the uncertainty is not taken out of the equation. You're still yeah. living completely yeah. undetermined
1: so world. So the point you're making is that this does not capture all the different data points that goes into making a decision, right?
0: Number one, and and it's it it essentially distorts a little bit what the decision making process is.
1: Yeah, um, so giving them giving them right. a sense of you know somebody like them if they were started right. on a statin, whether you know their chance of having a future heart attack or their chance of not having a heart attack uh w- w- you know they know themselves the best can't they decide why do what do they need us for why can't
0: I yeah, exactly we, i mean i think that's the idea you know right exactly at that point what do they need us for yeah yeah and so so the main point now i want to go back to to what yeah. the the commission was saying uh initially and how it it put this um this question of patient autonomy really as the pinnacle uh, value that we should um, we should address and that to me is 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 a very f- f- false idea right because it's really in the nature of being a patient that you lose. I mean, to be a patient means that you don't have full possession and full control of your, your capacities. I mean, that's what patient means. If you go to the etymology of patient, patient is the op- the opposite of agent, right? In Greek, uh, agent and action, uh, patient and, and passion. So a patient, it means that things happen to you and you're unable to to act. And, and that's why they come to the doctor and the doctor really has to uh, has to be very careful and has to take um, uh, his role primarily, uh, and, and that's where Hippocrates was so important. You know, I mean, we've completely lost off- sight of Hippocrates, but but in the Hippocratic ideal, is that you um, you become you know an advocate for the patient and you take the interest of the patient um, at heart, and and you essentially are acting as a surrogate for right. the patient who is incapacitated. right. But at the level, time, no. Of it's, course, it's, right. it's, it's easy to see when somebody is in a, in a coma or has septic yeah. shock and whatnot, they can't make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. But it's equally true when somebody comes and, and has to decide whether to take a statin or not, that really right. doesn't go away. Uh, right, it right. a little bit less intense and maybe, yeah. I mean, there's room for discussion. I don't dispute that. I don't dispute yeah. the fact that somebody who comes and wants to have a question about primary prevention of, of disease, yeah. Yeah. that pretty much they have full control and they should be able to decide if they want their mammogram right. or not. Right. That that is true. But but if they're asking me for my opinion, that means that at some level they don't have full control. Right? right. And therefore it's not a shared decision. It yeah. really is ultimately my decision on their behalf. Yeah. Right? So so the yeah. whole thing is false. And the whole thing continues to to perpetuate this notion which I think is wrong and, and the whole of modern medicine is, is based on it is that we as doctors are primarily technician, right? So we have technical expertise and technical know-how yeah. and then there's a patient who's autonomous and we have to respect their autonomy and somehow we have to make that work, but it, it's not really the nature of, of of the medical relationship.
1: Yeah.
0: And, uh, and, 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 and that's a, that's a view of medicine that continues to separate us from patient, Right? So, uh, in, in while they're trying, supposedly they're trying to to give more dignity to the patient, which I'm yeah. all for. At yeah. the same time, they really they're they're distancing our, our yeah. us the problem, patients mm-hmm. and and they're poisoning our relationship
1: to the patients. Yeah. The problem is, Michelle, is that you know I think the movement for SDM comes from not to I don't want to be, keep being out on the bush. The movement for SDM comes from. The less is more crowd
0: from this ah, idea that right. so, we're doing so, too much. That's right. So so that brings us to to the to the to the current paper. Yes. So now you have so now you have the emergence of EBM, you have the quality and the safety movement, and then they start testing these uh, decision making aids. Right. They oh. actually put them to the test. They actually have trials where they have a group that is right. subjected to SDM to to yeah. to the SDM uh, decision aids, and and lo and behold, wow the ones that are subjected to these decision A's, they end up, you know, using less, right? Using less right. healthcare, right. which of course I'm fully aware that there's an overutilization of of, of healthcare. Yeah. I don't dispute that. Yeah. But now, all of a sudden, SDM becomes, you know, it's like, okay, autonomy is, is a goal, but really the main goal here <laughs> is to reduce cost and yes, it becomes yeah, the tool yeah. for the policymaker, which is yeah. what this paper, you know, in JAMA is all about. It's about, yeah. you know, it's about reducing costs. Right. How right. if we tell patients, you know, here, look at the numbers, look at the, the number of frowny frowny faces, and so forth. Yeah. They're gonna opt for not getting the ICD, and it's yeah. all gonna be uh well. So, right. So I think I
1: think what, what's happening is I, again, there's a lot of beating around the bush uh, in when you say it's this. It's good because
0: the bush is worth, worth <laughs> beating very hard because yeah. it's, it's a huge bush.
1: Essentially, what 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 a lot of folks think is that the vast majority of doctors are not fully informing patients about the actual facts. And all of this is to try to get them, you know, force decision aids is to get them to share with them the actual facts. So, and again, there are egregious examples among us, right? There are people yeah. that have six months to live who get ICDs. There are well, clearly have six months to live that they get ICDs. There are folks that are on their fourth or fifth line of therapy or having terrible side effects, and they keep oncologists, you know, keep persisting. I mean, there's egregious examples among us that anyone uh, that all of us, uh, you know, unfortunately have heard about or know about. And so I think all of this is designed <laughs> to give that those those patients that are captivated by this group of folks uh, uh, some uh, aid in terms of not just going along with what they're
0: uh, right. So they're saying. So but, so it's it's essentially a, a collective punishment for the other doctors that perhaps do talk to their patients. Right. And take to, right. you know to to undergo a certain procedure, and so do you think that procedure will work? I mean, right. does it really? Is it really? I mean, the the people who are. You know, let's say there are prof- profiteers yeah. or people who really yeah. are pretty callous yeah. about their yeah. patients. Do you think that's really they're not going to be able to overcome this uh, yeah. little exercise? I think, and I think patient, yeah. the decision aids thing. That's
1: exactly. I think that is the great point. I think that's the great point. That that I think uh, that I think it would be better if we all spoke more plainer. And I think we should go after folks that are egregious and uh, are uh, so callous, as you're saying, with with patients. Instead of doing all the stuff that you know it, it is, i don 't think is going to really be worthwhile and it 's kind of hypocritical right because whenever you have cases where if you do if you do share decisions, so you know we had this case recently of the hundred and five year old who came in with a stroke who you uh, know may get a you know the question was could should he get a thrombectomy or not and uh, and you know the you know if you if you share the decision with the patient and the family to say that if the stroke completes, you know he will be in a very bad way, but if we do this procedure even though if there's a one in 100 chance that it succeeds, we may avert the stroke completely. If the patient and the family choose the procedure, right? Given what they know, given what has been told to them, um, uh, they will, you know, they're that is bad. That is That's not, right. that is not That's shared right. decision. <laughs> then, then we don't care about shared decision making. Then we don't care about patient autonomy. You know, if the patient makes the wrong... My, my problem with... A, the my problem with a lot of this is that if the patient doesn't make the decision that a certain group of folks want them to make, uh, then, then it's like, you know, obviously we didn't tell them, we didn't tell them about the harms well enough.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, you That's know. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it all assumes that, yeah, uh, you know, it, it's false at so many different levels, but sort of yeah. deep philosophically, it, it has a, the, it's the yeah. wrong representation of how people make decisions. Yeah. And yeah. number two, whether decisions right. can be shared, because really, no matter what, you, you can always influence the patient. Right. And if you really respect their autonomy and give them a little diagram and say, okay, you choose, and yeah. then they give you the wrong answer, <laughs> as you said, you know, we're <laughs> going to say, you know, we're going to shuck the diagram pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but, but the most, the, the biggest problem for me is that it really, mm-hmm. it further undermines the, the, um, the relationship between doctor and yeah. patients. Yep. Yep. You know?
1: Well, in the end of the day, we're, we are going to be replaced. This is why, you know, providers, not physicians. Correct. Correct. Uh, we're going to be replaced by uh, folks. Yeah. This is how AI will replace us because we will, we will dumb down medicine
0: to this point and then we will be able to be replaced by AI <laughs> by, right. robots,
1: by Watson. So
0: that's anyway. right. So, I mean, that's my, my little, yeah. uh, spiel on, on SDM.
1: No, it's, a, it's great it's great. it's great points. I, I, I think, I, I mean, in, 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 no, I mean, i don't I don't know what the best solution is to deal with folks that um, that that are unfortunately under the uh, uh, sway of physicians that perhaps have motives that aren't aligned with patients. you know you want to believe that most physicians have motives aligned with patients uh, we of course Michelle, you would agree. we have a system where a lot of times patients and physicians aren't necessarily aligned, so right. it's not surprising that there are physicians that are running around that are. Correct. Correct. Doing Doing things. And I don't know what, you know, this, I think the overall solution is to figure out how to align those incentives and things we've talked about with Dr. Keith Smith from the surgery center of Oklahoma, where (laughs) there are, there's a, there's a broader uh, systemic solution to this that would align uh, patients. Right. uh, Right. uh, Right. Physicians and incentives. And we don't have that now. And then we have all these silly little little band-aids that uh, are unlikely to help. And uh, certainly, uh, are likely to
0: harm in my in my opinion yeah. they're they're likely to to further uh, undermined. Um, no but that was that was a great review I, I didn't know about I did not know about the history of uh, yeah, I, you know it's always very instructive I mean I yeah. do it you know quite frequently when, when mm. I when something doesn't sound right you know go back and now you can get from PubMed you can you get this graph immediately that's beautiful like you notice yeah. it you, you notice it in the uh, yeah. when you do a search term immediately yeah. in the upper right hand corner yeah. you get a graph of
1: uh, I'm curious to see what the graph of
0: you know how often Coca and Achad were searched I'm curious to see what that <laughs> graph looks like it's going to go through the roof so let, let let me make an announcement to the audience that uh, you know I'm hoping that within two weeks or three weeks we'll we'll have a podcast feed as well and that they can subscribe to and uh, but in the meantime they can subscribe to this uh, youtube channel if they like to watch it on, on video we'll continue to have both and we're going to have we have a, a, a lineup of great guests uh, for the next few weeks so yes. once a week the account and coca report will continue to uh, you know to try to make sense of uh of healthcare and medicine. And um, and so, you know, I'm urging people to, to continue to uh, subscribe to the show.
1: Yeah, should, should be fun. Very exciting.
0: All right, Anish. All right. Nice chatting. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. com.